speaking device, maybe. That's what I need. An assistive, thank you, listening device. Please ask the sound team at the back. They're happy to help you. If you're visiting here in person, please stop by the welcome table after platform today to speak to a greeter or to our membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas. Those of you visiting online now or later, we invite you to send an email to Maceo at maceot, that's M-A-C-E-O-T, at ethicalsociety.org. Or to fill out a connection form, which you can find at tiny.cc slash westconnects, all one word. There are undoubtedly greetings in the Zoom chat from people listening remotely. Folks joining in virtually can use this time to get a candle to light during our candle lighting. Emily Newman, who's in the hall, is monitoring the Zoom chat for us. And if there are any comments, Emily is going to read some of those comments that have come in. And there are no comments. So we will just be moving along. Thank you, Emily, for being available. It is good to connect and to share this time together. Opening words this morning are from Felix Adler's founding address at the New York Society for Ethical Culture. Indeed, as it is easier to say, I do not believe and have done it, so also is it easier to say, I believe, and thus to bribe one's way into heaven, as it were, than to fulfill than to fulfill nobly our human duties with all the daily struggle and sacrifices which they involve. Today's opening song is Make Good Trouble. Stand up and make good trouble. Speak up and make good trouble. Get up and make good trouble. Rise up and make good trouble stand up and make good trouble speak up and make good trouble get up and make good trouble rise up and make good trouble stand up and make good trouble speak up make some and make good trouble Get up and make good trouble. Rise up, make some and make good trouble. Never be afraid to make some noise. Make some noise. Never be afraid to make some noise. Make some noise.
Each week, we read our statement of purpose as a reminder of our shared values. If you're interested in taking a turn to read the statement of purpose, you can sign up at tiny.cc slash read SOP, all one word. You can read it here in person or make a recording that will be included in a future platform. Today's reader is Denise Howell. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith and human goodness, we appreciate each other's, each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We warmly invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thank you, Denise. As Denise lights our community candle, I invite those of you with candles at home to light yours and for everyone to join in our candlelighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion light of understanding and then the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all in just a moment our senior leader casey slack will read this morning's story for all ages but first denise will take a moment to share with us some of what west means to her so i have wrestled with this question not because it's hard to think about what west means to me it means a lot but it's hard to articulate it in a way that is succinct and interesting, I guess. So one of the things that I thought of is another organization that means a lot to me and also has pledge drives. Raise your hand if you are an NPR listener. Keep your hand raised if you like listening to the pledge drives on NPR. So. I am the weirdo that actually likes listening to them. And the reason that I like it is because it's so moving to hear people saying what that community means to them. And it is in the spirit that I offer what Wes means to me. So NPR made a real difference in my life. I learned a lot of stuff from it, but it's a very one-way relationship. When I came to West, I didn't really know what I was looking for. I just knew that I wanted community. I didn't grow up in any religious tradition, so I wasn't really sure what community looked like. I just felt like I was missing out on something. And what kind of like NPR, West has changed me for the better. But West has also provided me the opportunity for real relationships and connection with other people. There are stories that I hear and I'm inspired by. Casey brings their whole selves to the job and I love that. There's so much courageous sharing that happens during the community sharing and platform. And I've had an amazing experience and made so many incredible connections in the Thai groups. But I'm not just hearing stories. There's also the warmth and acceptance with which my own stories have been received. There's an openness to the ideas that I bring for how we can make our community better. And then there's a realization that 
being myself and sharing that authentically can actually be a gift to others as well as myself. I'm learning that sometimes just showing up and being willing to help and learn is enough of an offering to the community. I will admit that I joined the tech team because there were enough consecutive news and notes asking for help that I thought they might just be desperate enough to take me. <laughs> but I'm learning that you don't need a full resume of all your past accomplishments to be able to give something at West. And the learn from our mistakes and forgive each other generously mantra that we had as we started Hybrid Platform is still something that I say to myself and others on Sundays, and I'm trying to bring that attitude into the rest of my life. And being in community can be hard. Being in a relationship can be hard. I'm grateful for the intentionality that Wes has around building community like the CRC workshops that have been going on where we can learn and discuss how we can be in community better. And the most important part about Wes is that it's not like any other part of my life. It's not like work, it's not like friendships, it's not like school experiences. I feel like Wes gives me a place to be myself while also challenging and supporting me and being a better version of myself. And that's all I have. Thank you so much for sharing, Denise. Our Time for All Ages story today is written by Caitlin Cotter Coilberg, who happens to be the RE director at the Silver Spring UU congregation, though I did not pick this story for that reason. It's called Homer's Wings. I don't know that it happened this way, but I do know that it's true that long ago and far away, or, or more likely, likely recently and, and relatively nearby, high up in the mountains on a black cherry tree, an egg was laid on a leaf. And in the light of the full moon, that egg hatched into a little brown caterpillar with white markings that would look to a bird who might chance to see it, perhaps like bird droppings, and thus get to live another day. This particular caterpillar's name was Homer. Homer looked around in surprise and wonder to find himself alive in the world. Better eat your egg casing, little friend, said a black and spiky caterpillar nearby. Homer did just that and then turned to look at his new friend. Welcome to the world, said the other caterpillar, whose name was Alex. It's delicious. Here, try some of this leaf. Together, the two caterpillars munched on leaves that spring through rain and sun, sunrises and sunsets. They laughed together at the antics of baby birds and hid together under leaves that the black silky spider spiky caterpillar had collected so that the parent birds couldn't catch them. Alex taught Homer all he needed to know about life on a leaf how to, how to stay safe, safe how, to how to munch, how to, how to enjoy, enjoy the feeling of the wind stirring the tree and the sun slowly warming the mountains each morning. 
Together, they gazed each night up at the beautiful moon. One day, the black spiky caterpillar started doing something totally new and different. What are you doing? asked Homer, as Alex carefully put down silk on the underside of a twig in the newest collection of leaves and began hanging upside down. Making a chrysalis, said Alex. A what? You'll see. And, and over the next couple of days, in the shelter of the leaves, the spiky black caterpillar shifted and shed its skin and became a strange lumpy brown thing, hanging there, not making any conversation. What could this mean? For a week, Homer munched quietly by himself, watching the strange brown hanging thing that used to be his friend, wondering and worrying as the strange lumpy brown thing shifted in color and size and pattern. Then, one day, out of the strange lumpy brown chrysalis pushed an even stranger new creature. Homer watched as the new creature pumped blood into black and white and bright orange wings. Wings? And unfurled a strange new mouth. What? cried Homer. Who? The new creature turned to look at him. Oh, little friend, it said. It's still me, Alex. The one you laughed and hid and munched leaves and watched the moon with. But now I'm a butterfly. An admiral butterfly, to be specific, Alex said proudly. But you changed, cried Homer. You were as constant at the moon as the moon, and now you have changed. Alex smiled gently. Oh, friend, we're supposed to change. Why, even the moon is different night to night. Sometimes we see all of it, sometimes only a sliver. Sometimes we can't see it at all. But I don't want to change, lamented Homer, scared and sad. Change is part of who we are, said the butterfly who was Alex. And now our friendship must change, too. I must fly away in search of flowers and other butterflies, and eventually I will fly south to stay warm in the winter. You must continue to eat and grow and stay safe from the birds, but you will change, too. Just remember, you are loved, and whatever your body does, you are a beautiful friend, and I am glad I know you. And with that, Alex took to the sky. But Homer remembered his friend and was brave. All winter, the chrysalis hung there, safe and still. In the spring, Homer felt himself stir, felt his new body shift once again, and wiggled free to find himself with a new mouth and a different shape and wings, 
wings that were yellow and black and blue and orange and glorious. Oh my, said Homer, the Appalachian tiger swallowtail, gazing at himself in wonder and delight. And then he took off into the sky, up towards the bright moon, bold as a bird, up the broad sweep of the mountains. Thank you. Thank you, Casey. Let us now enter into the centering time of our platform. Each week, we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I am particularly mindful of the pattern of silencing dissenting black voices, most recently the expelled House representatives in Tennessee for protesting gun violence in schools. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us open our hearts to compassion for those who suffer. And let us commit ourselves to the work that calls for our love. I invite you to take a moment to feel settled in this space. For you, that might mean with your feet flat on the floor. You might need to stretch a little bit. You're invited to do that so long as you're mindful of the people near you. You might need to take some big, deep breaths. Whatever it is that you need to do to finish arriving in this space, to let go of whatever rush your morning held or your week held, to maybe set down the stress of the news. I invite you to breathe deeply and to reflect for a moment on change as it has already happened in your lives. And I know that it has already happened in your lives because none of you is a baby. And so you have changed quite a bit already. 
the change that is bones stretching so that you are taller, some of you still taller every day, some of you not so much anymore. The change that built all of your organs while you still lived in somebody else's body. The change that was learning to speak, learning to say your own name to the world, learning to write your own name, to make sentences, to put your thoughts into the world in words and in text and in gesture. Maybe at some point you learned to dance or to sing, to paint, to express yourself creatively, and you changed then too. And each time you did that thing again, you were a little bit different. The change that happens when you have met another, any other, really, but especially those ones you recognize as changing your life forever. The way new people and new information and new experiences remake you over and over again. Every day, a fresh new person. I invite you to breathe and reflect and be grounded here, a moment in motion, a person on your way every single I invite you to keep reflecting on these things as we continue our meditation in silence and music. With heavy heart I raise 
squeeze my chin as I see my numbers wearing thin. The sky hangs low, the light burns dim. I know not if I sink or swim. That was really beautiful. 
Today's reading is from W.E.B. Du Bois in the, in the Ordeal of Mansart. How shall integrity face oppression? What shall honesty do in the face of deception? Decency in the face of insult? Self-defense before blows? How shall desert and accomplishment meet despising, detraction, and lies? What shall virtue do to meet brute force? There are so many answers and so contradictory. And such differences for those on the one hand who meet questions similar to this once a year or once a decade, and those who face them hourly and daily. The title of Casey's talk this morning is The Struggle is Real. Casey, the mic is yours. Thank you, Elise. The struggle is indeed real. Sometimes simply the struggle to get the mask off of my ears without it getting stuck on a multitude of earrings. Struggle is indeed real every single day. Struggle is real is a phrase common in Black and African-American communities, something meant to explain exactly what it sounds like, that what you are going through, the experience of racism on your body every day, that is a real struggle. The struggle to feed your family, to exist in late-stage capitalism, that struggle is real. There is so much to struggle against. No matter what kind of body you find yourself in in this life. There is so much worthy of our time and attention. So much that we could choose to focus on. Just this week, we saw many examples of very worthy things to fight against, right? In the Tennessee State House, an eruption of fascism. I can call it no other thing. The decision to expel two members of that assembly, black men who were protesting gun violence, while not expelling their white female colleague, underscored it too strongly. It would have been bad enough to expel all three of them, but to expel only the black members and not a white woman along with them. It makes what I've been trying to say for years more obvious than I could ever have hoped to make it in my own voice. And that's not all. In Idaho, they are making it criminal to help a young person cross the border to get an abortion. Around the country, laws about transgender youth and health care get stricter and stricter, and our federal government turns over. 
There is so much worth our struggle every day. And those of us who wish to transform the world must be willing to be transformed ourselves or there will be no real transformation. If you study revolution as I have, you see over and over in the course of history that when we have a revolution, when we make a big change, but we do not do the internal work, we do not do the community work, we do not actually change, we simply build a new version of the old thing. You, you might be able to see that in the growing monarchism among your American compatriots, right? The number of people who openly think it would be cool to have a king, despite that being the exact reason that we have this country in the first place. The desire to put someone in power who will share that power with his biological family. You can see clearly how we didn't actually work monarchy out of our system. And with monarchy, with this supremacist system where somebody is closer to God and thus everybody else must listen, we brought and built white supremacy and Christian supremacy hierarchy to the core. It is really, really hard to change for real. You have to try, and it is scary. In fact, changing for real will undo your sense of self for a while, and that is horrifying. We do not like to lose our sense of self, and when we are trying to resist oppression, we really want to think of ourselves as the good ones in a fight between the good ones and the bad ones, but friends, the unfortunate reality is that there are mostly neither good ones nor bad ones, just messy humans making decisions, some more in the direction of love and community and some less. But, but it's not, not like, like the people who do harm are monsters. Not, not like they are unlike you and I, not like, like we are incapable of doing harm ourselves. When a, when a caterpillar goes to become a butterfly, it builds a cocoon and then liquefies its entire body. That, that must be horrifying. I don't, I don't imagine, imagine that caterpillars, caterpillars have like higher level reasoning, reasoning. but if, if they, they did, did, this would be super traumatic. traumatic. I don't know what's happening, and now my body has become a liquid and is reforming itself into a shape I am unfamiliar with. But the story about caterpillars and butterflies was a time for all ages for a reason. I am wearing butterflies for a reason. When we go to change, we have to let ourselves be liquefied. But luckily, we don't have to do it alone. We don't have to do it in isolation. We don't have to do it spontaneously and without any information about what's happening. We can say, okay, 
I need, I need to change, change. and this, this is going to break me up some. I am going to liquefy. I am going to be different. And we can say, okay, friend, are you liquefying too? Can we liquefy together? Okay, community, it is time for us to be different. Can we let go? Some, some of these things, things that we cling on to? Can we let go of the shape we had before? In the hopes that the shape we will have on the other end of this experience is more beautiful, more mobile, has wings. Can we become goo together? Can we have a revolution in our spirits, in ourselves, that really, really changes the assumptions we've been working with? I think that we can, and I also think that we must. The old world has been over longer than most of us know. It is easy to look at the beginning of the pandemic and say, here is where the old world ended. But I, being not any more uh, prescient than anybody else, was preaching about the end of the world at least four years earlier. And I got that from people who have been preaching it since the 90s, the 80s, the 70s. The... Maybe the old world has been over longer than any of us have been alive. That would be weird. But whatever the marcation point you want to put, and you can put any that works, it's over and it's not working. And you know that it's not working, you know, in your lives, but you know, if you drive downtown in DC and you see people living in tents on the street, because what sort of functional society cannot feed and clothe and house people? Not one that I envision, not one that I am proud of. What sort of functional society has an entire generation of children so traumatized by gun violence? I don't even need to finish that sentence. What have we done? Some of what is hard to let go of for those of us who have been alive a while, and I imagine this is worse if you have been alive longer than I have, is we have been trying. We have been trying and we still are in this situation. And it is so hard to accept that maybe what we already did didn't work. So, there is this need for us to be reborn. And friends, I did not actually set out to come up with an Easter platform. <laughs> but here we are. There will be no Jesus. There will be rebirth. It is time for a rebirth in each of us here in our community, 
in the American Ethical Union, in the Unitarian Universalist Association, in Washington, D.C., in Maryland, in Virginia, in our country and in our world, because if we think these problems are ours alone, we are lying to ourselves. Social justice theme for the month is global anti-blackness for a reason. Because though you can start the American version of racism and anti-blackness at the founding of the United States of America, where do you think we got it from? It didn't come from nowhere. It was built along with the idea of Europeanness, of whiteness, the idea of a man as a stand-in for a generic human person. The idea that there is a generic human person. So one of the things we have to deal with is white supremacy culture. Anya Overstreet, who is an AEU board member and an international human rights organizer, wrote a blog post recently outlining her perspective on ways white supremacy culture plays out in organized humanism. I'm not going to quote from it at a lot of length right now, but I encourage you to find it and read it. If you care about ethical culture, if you care about organized humanism, this is a thing worth reading. But I want to talk a little bit about those hallmarks of white supremacy culture. Tema Oken, who is a longtime social justice activist who works on issues of race and racism and white supremacy in the United States, writes that white supremacy culture trains us all to internalize attitudes and behaviors that do not serve any of us. I'm starting with this because it is really easy especially for white people, to hear white supremacy culture and think that white supremacy means the KKK. It does not. And to think that calling something white supremacy culture means that you are flipping the traditional ideas of good and bad from white good, black bad to black good, white bad. And that is not what is happening here. What is happening here is identifying a culture that we are all enculturated into. We have all been taught the ways of that is helpful to no one. You would think that white supremacy culture might be helpful to white people. It isn't. It is helpful to some white people who already have lots of power and lots of money. It helps. The coal company keep the coal miners from caring about their black compatriots. This is part of why the Pinkertons literally killed people during the coal mining uprisings, right? Because once you have solidarity between white and black working class people, you have a problem that they did not know how to handle. So if you could kill people and blame it on somebody else, you could stoke resentment cause separation between people. White supremacy culture does not serve anything but power. Power that is used poorly, and poorly is the nicest word I could conceivably say about it. 
So here are some characteristics of white supremacy culture. Some of them I will simply say, and some of them I will give a little extra description for. And what I hope you can do in this section of our platform is think a little bit about what of these hits you hardest? Which of these do you hear and go, Ugh. and that Ugh, could be either, oh no, I do that, or, oh, I see that in our organization, or, oh, I see that at work, or, oh, I see that in the world. Perfectionism. Folks within organizations drenched in white supremacy culture often talk to others about a person's inadequacy or their work without ever talking directly to them. Perfectionism married with a distaste for open conflict. Perfectionism also that says that what is important is that everything we present is perfect and that if we are perfect, then people will like us. Despite the fact that nobody has ever in the history of being a person been perfect, that we all make mistakes and that we can offer help without first giving criticism, right? We can respond to noticing that something was written incorrectly in an email with, hey, can I help you work through these emails that you, you must have a pile, can I help? Rather than, you did this wrong again. A sense of urgency. A continued sense of urgency makes it difficult to be inclusive, to encourage real democratic participation and thoughtful decision-making to think long-term or to consider consequences or even to learn from mistakes. We are all super enculturated into a sense of urgency by a world that goes too fast. Our work lives, especially if you are not in a workspace that intentionally slows down, want faster, 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 faster. And in the course of your lives, my life too, the rate of production of the average American worker has gone up ridiculously. And all that has happened is that we are all now supposed to work even faster because our machines do. And aside, in my dream world, the machines do the menial labor so the humans can do the art. I think that maybe we're more here to do the art than to, I don't know, make widgets. But a sense of urgency is a hallmark of white supremacy culture. Defensiveness, the idea that there is only one right way to do things. And that as long as people are introduced to the right way, they will see the light and adopt it. Either or thinking, the idea that we have to focus on one thing or everything is over, or one thing to the exclusion of all other things, or the idea that you can't be both anti-racist and someone who is drenched in white supremacy culture. You can. A person can be, gosh, so many things all at once. A person is likely 
more things than you can imagine all at once. So is a community, so is a city, so is a country. It scales all the way out. Eternalism is another one of those hallmarks. Worship of the written word, and I take an aside here to mention that that is worship of the written word above all others. That is not value in communication through language. That is not value in academic texts or things that are easy to keep into the future. That is, if someone wrote it down in a book, it is more important than if someone passed it down in a story. It is more important if someone wrote it in English, actually, than if someone wrote it in, well, anything that isn't a European language, right? That it is more important that someone wrote it than if someone painted it or sang it. If you know it from a book versus if you know it from your gut. This is also one of those places along with objectivity where we get real scared of our emotions and our bodies. You have probably heard someone say that another person's argument isn't good because it's emotional. Your emotions aren't a problem. Your emotions aren't something to be sucked out of your life and pulled out of your approach to the world. Your emotions are a type of fact, a type of fact. Now, they're not the easiest to parse type of fact because you have not been taught much how to hear your emotions as a type of fact, right? But your emotions are a type of fact and they are telling you something, something worth knowing. Maybe that something is that you are hungry and maybe that something is that you need a nap. And maybe that something is that you need a hug or a glass of water. But maybe if there is something in the pit of your stomach that says this is wrong, it's because it's wrong. And if there is something in your heart that says this is good, it's because it's good. We can listen at once to our minds and our hearts. We don't have to pull them apart. Power hoarding is another hallmark of white supremacy culture. That is, there is one person or a small group of people and they make all of the decisions and they do not have to tell you anything about how they get made. They make decisions. They hold on to power, like if it's not something that can be shared. They hold on to power, like if having power makes them safe. Power hoarding is a bad use of power. Power exists and is best when we share it. When we have power together and power with, rather than power over, a fear of open conflict is a hallmark of white supremacy culture. And I will say two things about this. One is that you are all better at conflict than you think you are. One of the stories I hear West tell about itself is that we are not good at conflict. Friends, nobody is good at conflict. But for a congregational community, you do okay. Now, this does mean please excuse the metaphor I'm about to use. This does mean you handle conflict like children, 
most adults do. Please do not hear me. I also handle conflict mostly like a child. I'm working on it. But you don't handle conflict like a toddler. And that is a big step. You don't handle conflict like a toddler who hasn't had a nap yet. And that is a big step. And a lot of congregations, a lot of communities, a lot of people continue to handle conflict like they are a toddler in desperate need of a nap. So being a child is a step. And maybe we can grow to handle conflict like, and this is going to sound ridiculous, teenagers, which at least is a very open type of conflict, right? Teenagers will have it out with each other in a very direct way. Maybe we can grow in our capacity. But please know that you're not bad at this and you are not fundamentally bad at it. It's a skill, and a skill that has been kept from you in the larger world on purpose because people who can handle conflict are harder to manipulate. The fear of open conflict is a hallmark of white supremacy culture. The idea that I'm the only one is a hallmark of white supremacy culture. That is, I am unique among all other people and you must listen to me because I am the best. This comes out in leaders more often than anybody else. I have the right ideas and you must listen to me. This is a place that charismatic leaders come from. And I am working through if there is a way to be a charismatic leader in an ethical, balanced way. That is one of the like, main conflicts of my own work as a relatively charismatic person and a leader who has no interest in the kind of power over abusive systems that runs, well, some of us have heard me say this, that runs megachurches, that runs much of dominant Christianity and the dominant world in general. The idea that one person has special access to the truth is not how humans work. Everybody has special access to some truth. Each of you knows something I cannot know, even if it is just what it's like to be you. I say just like if that's a little thing, right? But even if we had identical educations, you would have it as you and not as me, and that would be different knowledge. Individualism, similarly, this idea that someone can do it on their own, that you should be able to do it on your own. This idea of objectivity, which I talked about a little bit when I was talking about the worship of the written world word. But objectivity, not as in there is a scientific method and through it we can learn things completely. But as in when I am deciding what things I am going to learn through that scientific method, I am a blank slate. Nobody is a blank slate. At no point are you unmoved by your own experiences. Even the most hard science of hard science people bring their own preferences and biases into what they choose to study. And even if it's not their preferences and biases, it's what will get funded, which is certainly not objective. People can approach things in a more or less objective manner, but being alive is fundamentally subjective. We are fundamentally having an experience that is ours and thus not everybody's. 
an obsession with objectivity and with dispassionate study is a hallmark of white supremacy culture that is particularly harmful in the context of a religion which has removed itself from theism. Because without a specific text to be focused on, often we are focused on our experience. And without a text and with a move towards thinking and feeling together, there is a habit to feel, there is a groove that is very big in our culture. And that groove is the tradition that led us to exactly where we are, right? So we owe it to ourselves to get out of that groove of objectivity, to remember that we are subjective subjects coming together to have a more complete picture, but not ever the whole picture and not being removed from our personhood. The final of this list of hallmarks of white supremacy culture is the idea of a right to comfort, which is not the idea that we should not intentionally cause other people harm, right? But it is the idea that your comfort with hearing about racism, with hearing about gender, with hearing about sexuality, with hearing about violence, your lack of comfort is more important than the learning that is there. You cannot stay comfortable and change. You cannot stay comfortable and grow. The space of growth and change is outside of your comfort zone necessarily. An obsession with your comfort, with things being the way you most like them to be, the music being the music that you most like, my flat platforms having the content that you most like. All of that is about your right to comfort. It is not the most important thing, though I do not want you to get so far out of your comfort zone that you're in your panic zone, right? Comfort is here, growing is here, and panic is out here. We're trying to stay in growth. I want you to know also that white supremacy culture and Christian supremacist, Christian supersessionist, goodness, that's a hard word, supersessionist, culture are married. They are one fabric. It is not enough for us to simply say, we don't believe that stuff. It is not enough for us to simply say, we don't wish to be racist. We don't, we are not Christian. You actually have to divorce. You actually have to pull it apart. And you cannot do that if you can't have a conversation about it. At the UUA General Assembly in 2016, uh, Reverend Nancy McDonald Ladd, who is minister up the road at River Road, introduced to the UU world the idea of fake fights. She introduced this by talking about professional wrestling and how they are having fundamentally fake fights. But when the fake fight gets dangerous, when there is a chance of real harm, those wrestlers tap out. She was calling on UUs to tap out of fake fights, and I am today calling on all of you and on the American Ethical Union to tap out of fake fights. Fake fights are the places that we put our energy when we don't want to talk about something real. We fight about the paint color and how many emails we get and whether or not this thing was punctuated correctly. Instead of fighting, instead of having a conversation, Instead of getting into the real and scary questions of, 
How have we been formed by white supremacy? Are we relevant? What would it take to be relevant? What would it look like if we knew how to talk about ourselves in the world? What would it look like if we knew how to say what we are instead of what we aren't? Fake fights take up a lot of time in congregational life. I will tell you that fake fights are taking up a lot of my time right now, are taking up a lot of your staff's very limited time. I had a small breakdown this week because I was not sure that I was doing anything that mattered because I feel like I spend a lot of my time chasing around stuff that there is no reason for us to be fighting about. Working on projects that are about calming someone or another's ego down. I am tapping out of fake fights. And I am asking you to do that too. To practice together, focusing on what matters because there is too much that matters. The world needs us too badly for us to be fighting about I could list, but I will not. What I want to offer instead are some practices that can help you calm down enough to get away from the fake fights. A congregation is often the first place people take their anxiety about the rest of the world, and the staff of a congregation, triply so. We all need to stop taking it out on each other and do the work to change and some ways that you can help yourself when you notice that you have gotten just all tied up in a knot about something that maybe is not that important for real, or something that is that important, I don't know. You don't know when you're worked up about it whether it's important or not. So here are a couple of somatic practices that can help you come back home and focus on what you really care about. The first one, which is one of my favorites right now, is called step breathing. So you take a big deep breath in, and then you take another one on top of it. And then you blow it out with a sound. And then you do it again, right? Big breath in. Another one on top of it. And out. And a third time. One more. Doesn't that feel better? Yeah. Another one on our butterfly theme today is called a butterfly hug. So what you do is you wrap your arms across your chest like if you're giving yourself a hug. And the tips of your fingers should be about at your collarbone. And what you do is you alternate your hands and you pat like the wings of a butterfly. You pick. Whatever rhythm works for you. And you breathe. And you do that until you are feeling a little more like a person again. Until you are ready to be back in your body, to have thoughts that you get to process rather than that process you. Feelings that you get to pull the facts out of, 
rather than get driven by. I have one last thing for today, and it is a litany. It's called The Litany for Becoming, and it was written by the Enfleshed Collective, a collective which I am part of, which provides liturgy and other spiritual community resources for LGBT folks. What we're going to do is I will read, and then when I have stopped, you will respond to me, and you will say, this is loving and being loved. I'll remind you of the words along the way. To become is a lifelong process. Nothing is constant, not even the self. We evolve in the midst of narratives meant only for some and ways of being made narrow by fear and power. We must then have the courage to listen to the truth of our own lives, to the wisdom that comes from within, responding without resistance or need to control, but with welcome and curiosity. This is what ensures our becoming is an unfolding of our truest self. This lifelong labor cannot be carried out alone. It requires help from friends and lovers, family and creaturely companions who bear witness to what makes us come alive and say to us, listen, look, feel, pay attention to that. This is loving and being loved telling the stories, sharing in the memories, giving thanks for the relationships, understandings, and experiences past that have shaped us to this day. This is loving and being loved. Celebrating new beginnings that excite, holding risks together, leaning into unknowns with the promises of support and companionship. This is loving and being loved listening to the future calling uniquely to each of us in the midst of all of life's noise, helping one another find our place in the shared labor of collective life, supporting each other in what it is the world's ache is asking from us. This is loving and being loved. To say for the first time, this is who I am, this is the truth of my body. This is what I know about myself. This is my name, and this is where my path is leading me. To have it heard, to have it received, to have it affirmed, and then to say it again and again as we change and as the world changes. And to have each proclamation greeted with an open-armed embrace. This is loving and being loved. There is no me without you. We shape one another. The sacred that birthed us weaves our lives together so that we can only find ourselves through shared becoming. For my journey and all its winding ways, for yours, for all the saints who labored for what is, all the kin who made our lives possible, all those yet to come for whom living our truths today will mean breaking possibilities open for them tomorrow. We pause, we give thanks, we acknowledge. This is loving and being loved. May it be so.
Thank you. In a few minutes, we will have our community sharing time when you can write into the chat or share in person about what resonated with you in this platform. While we listen to today's musical response, you might prepare by reflecting on a personal experience or an activity at WES that the platform brings to mind. I will be your standing stone. I will stand by you. I will be your standing stone. I will stand by you. And when you feel it, you rise. And we think about all the people out there who don't have a voice. This is our time to sing and hold them up. Nod your head if you understand what I'm saying. So when you feel it, and not before, because your heart will tell you when. I will be your standing stone. I will stand by you. I will be your standing stone. I will This is the time when we add our own voices to the morning, sharing our reflections on the platform or what resonates with our own personal experience. For our online participants, I invite you to share in the Zoom chat or in the comments if you're watching the recording later. If you're here in person, you can come to the microphone here on the floor and share your brief comments so that others may also share. Let's start by checking to see what online participants have written in the Zoom comments. Um, so from the beginning uh, sharing, just wanted to let uh, Denise know that you got some yays and woos and uh, not just for sharing, but also for you joining the tech team. Um, and I'll check back if there's more. Hi, my name is Peter, he, him, his. Well, thank you, Casey. I thought this was a wonderful, wonderful platform. Uh, I did want to expand on what you're saying about comfort. Because as I've been thinking about things recently, 
I've been realizing that comfort is also part of what a religious community does for its members. And so just as you were saying, the problem is to demand that you be completely comfortable. That is where the problem is. But when you are suffering, you need to be comforted. I still remember when Trump was elected and Amanda held a little meeting outside in the, in the, uh, uh, where we have a coffee hour. And there was a handful of us who came there and we all grieved together. And that was comforting. Uh, so, uh, so thank you. Hello, uh, Jeff Mehal here. I'm going to ask the um, community's uh, pardon um, because we've been dealing with a lot um, in the past 24 hours. Uh, when you mentioned Tennessee, uh, Casey, I was thinking about my mother who moved to Tennessee from Florida and now is back in Florida again, so it's kind of like going from the frying pan into the fire back into the frying pan again. Uh, and one time when I was visiting her for an extended stay in Tennessee, she said, Jeff, there's one thing you've got to realize about Tennessee. It is a dumb state. And I mentioned this to an aunt of Betsy's yesterday, an aunt by marriage who divides her time between Knoxville and uh, Silver Spring. And she said, you know, that's absolutely right. And in listening to the, what I can only describe as the mealy-mouthed explanations of those who voted to expel two young black uh, legislators from their state house. Um, you, you, what you really heard and what I heard, what she heard was a subtext of a white power structure saying, well, those boys got exactly what they deserved. And if you find the word boy offensive, which it is, I'm only using it in place of a far more offensive word, which I will not utter. Um, how do you fight back? Well, you can start by not visiting the state of Tennessee, despite its lavish uh, uh, tourist productions for Nashville and Memphis, because when you get out of those areas into places like McMinnville or Tullahoma or, or Dixon or, uh, you know, even Lynchburg, which is might as well be called Jack Daniels City, uh, never mind that Jack Daniel was a dope and his slaves actually uh, mastered the science of distilling uh, bourbon whiskey or, or sour mash whiskey. Things go downhill in a hurry. And it was an overreaction and it was a stupid thing to do because they've created the backlash. And I can only think, and I'll close by the quote uh, attributed, I guess, uh, Bill Haywood, the labor organizer of the earliest 20th century was sentenced to hang for his uh, organizer, for his, his subversion or views as subversion. And on the, on the gallows, he said, don't mourn boys, organize. Eric Moyer, they, them. Um, just gonna read a little bit uh, from uh, Dune Messiah. A creature who has spent his life creating one particular representation of his, his selfdom will die rather than become the antithesis of that representation. 
So we tend to hold on to ourself. And I don't know if this next part is just my holding on to the self, but um, I, I have a, a question, why label these particular things white supremacy culture? Because um, criticizing behind people's backs is well known throughout human history. It's something that you can find in African villages and in uh, East, you know, Chinese villages or anywhere else. And um, dichotomies, common fallacy. We make lots of either or dichotomies. Power hoarding, gee, we, we haven't had uh, tyrants and bullies and leaders for millennia. Um, so I, I don't necessarily say that it's wrong, but it, it seems strange to me to label those things under white supremacy culture when they just seem to be human failings. Uh, Abby, she, her. Um, so I think tapping out of fake fights uh, is the the thing that I'm going to take away from this particular platform. Um, it is something that I have done in my life in interpersonal situations very with great effect. Um, but you're obviously talking about it on a broader stage, and I I look forward to learning more about that. But I... What I really wanted to share is much more frivolous than that. There was a, um, when you were talking about the butterfly dissolving themselves, it made me think of a science fiction book called Record of a Spaceborn Few by Becky Chambers, which I recommend heartily. <laughs> and in it, there is um, a character of an alien species and one, the, the species has a transformation in their life. And the way they culturally consider that transformation is that the self they were before the transformation into their adult form dies. That was a separate organism that dies. They have no memory from that time. And so they, they grieve it, not unlike, you know, a, a gotcha day for an adopted individual is an opportunity for grief and for joy at the same time. And I feel like that could be helpful also here. Hi, I'm Shayla, she, her. Casey, I just wanted to say you knocked that one out of the park. And that was just so, every single thing was just so profound and so thought provoking for me in my life. And, you know, I'm dealing with some things with some volunteer that, that I'm doing and, you know, just the whole, I'm trying to help, but it's not working for some reason. Hmm, maybe. I, I'm definitely going to pay attention to stuff you said, so thank you so much. Um, sharing this on behalf of our own Robin uh, Kravitz, who is a Tennessean. Um, she says, I worked in those offices where this expelling happened. It makes me sick. I will continue to vote as a Tennessean. I don't even know what to say other than please don't give up on us.
Thank you to all who shared their thoughts and attention. And thank you for a wonderful platform. Just as we share our perspectives in this community, so too do we share our resources and gifts. Here at West, we split all undesignated gifts in the Sunday collection between our operating budget and a fund dedicated to justice and compassion. During the month of April, we are pleased to support the Capoeira Spot. Capoeira is an Afro-Brazilian martial art created by African warriors enslaved in Brazil and used to fight for their freedom. At the Capoeira Spot, the focus is on empowering youth and adults to grow stronger together. Now I'd like to invite Ren Powell, thank you, to come forward and say a few words about the Capoeira Spot. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I, uh, we've had a, a very busy weekend, and um, I, I just want to thank you for this opportunity to uh, be here to um, share some words about the theme resistance, as you know, capoeira in itself is living resistance. I, in myself, is living resistance. And um, it goes right along with your sermon. I loved, I loved it. I, 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 maybe I need to come more <laughs> to, to share more in these moments. Um, but um, resistance comes in many different forms. It, it, it comes in one, first of all, just living, not giving up. Um, and then it comes in utilizing the resources that you have to stay alive, to thrive. Um, and with Capoeira, um, it's one of those things where there is no like templates set out for the creation of capoeira. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm particularly talking about capoeira, but it is not the only thing that was created out of resistance. And even if it was martial arts or food or, or music, um, but this particular art form, um, it allowed people to take their cultural norms and allowed them to take the things that supported them culturally put it together in a foreign environment and create something that they can thrive with. Now, when you look at the capoeira, you see kicks, you see acrobatic movements, um, you see sometimes <laughs> not a resistance, but like combat. And even that is a part of resistance among yourselves, because even in the resistance, there are different versions of directions that we should go and how we should quote unquote fight or resist. Um, and I think with the capoeira it's beautiful that it allows us to have both. It allow, allows you the, the opportunity to one, because you're moving around so much and you're staying in that form that makes you look not so physically vulnerable. One, it's a deterrent. And then two, the opportunity to be able to interact, talk to someone, communicate, and probably, as I would say, talk them off the ledge or worst case scenario, actually back up and really resist and defend yourself. So um, we encourage a lot of people, particularly children. I again, your sermon, I thought it was so perfect. And I thought that it's something I could bring into the school system where I think actually this message is, is, is the most potent, honestly. I think when I look around the room, I see mature people in the audience. I see us who've had a life, we've experienced a lot of things. We, we can have an opinion, we can say certain things, we can, we, can, we can resist in what we call a proper way because of our life experiences. But when I see children, 
because you know this this theme of white supremacy and all the the so-called isms that exist out there i think we are kind of like we already kind of understand in a sense not its permanence but is it our need to eradicate it but i think how do our children grow into this how do they become that from the time they're born i'm born in 74 in my mind i'm like okay clearly everything's obviously visible to see at this point but still people grow into white supremacy or they grow into some form of oppression that someone has to resist so i think your message is something that needs to be taken to like an elementary level to teach like we do with capoeira we do the same thing I, I tell people that what we do with Capoeira is we explore your creative energy. And in the process of exploring your creative energy, we talk about the resistance, the resistance you need to get stronger, physical resistance, and then the resistance you need to keep up this art form. So I, 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 right along with what you're saying, I think these messages, we really have to take these messages out to the root of our community, you know? And the root of our community are the children to hear how to go about one, you know, figuring out conflicts, um, realizing and recognizing when they are the oppressors, realizing and recognizing when they are being oppressed, realizing and recognizing when we need to get together. Even when I watch the news, I see the same thing from the resistance. There's all of us out here screaming and saying all these other things. And I'm wondering to myself, like, I know we live in an enlightened area, so DC is a little bit different than as he was mentioning Tennessee. But at the same time, I'm just like, wait a minute, it's, we're all the same mindset talking about the same thing. How do we change the mindset? I think we got to go to the roots. And uh, that's why I've spent the last 10 years of my Capoeira career teaching youth, because I think that's the, the one chance we get to really like make a difference early. And I, and I, I don't, I, I, it's hard to make a difference later. I, I teach adults too, but it's very difficult to to, to get someone to concentrate on some of what we call the better things in life when the pressure of life has them in survival mode. And when you're in survival mode, you're hungry right now, there's someone's wallet or being good, you're thinking about full belly. So some of the decisions that I make that keep up the oppression and keep up the supremacy and, 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 and creates this need for resistance is just basic living, is basic you know, going about your day, room, board and shelter, all these other things that, that makes people, um, um, you know, shift into the zone of being an oppressor or shift into the zone of, of recognizing, oh my God, there needs to be some resistance here. Um, I think we're supposed to do a quick demonstration, uh, Maceo. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, I, I just um, think that teaching these themes resistance um the ability to recognize um when you are in a position where that is something that's going to float to top we need to have tools to work with i don't think a lot of people have a lot of tools to work with when it comes to resistance i think we listen and we hear what we are taught oftentimes you know i i myself i'm not a big fan of um but from what I've seen so far, it, I'm my mind's tainted by some of the resistance techniques that I see that is in our communities. I'm like, wait a minute, we keep doing the same thing. They keep beating us down the same way. Are, is anyone's ear gonna actually open? And these people that we're trying to um, resist against, they're like us, mature, but mature in resistance, in, in, in oppression. So someone is mature in oppression and we're, we're mature in needing to resist, where do we go? I'm not sure that we, you know, if there's any 
this is weird. It seems like this because we're not listening to each other. We are screaming. You're hurting me. The other person is going, grow up, get strong, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. All these other things that they say out there when it's it's not it's not that way. We need to communicate. And I think that again, if we get into the the, the learning, the debunking, the the reprogramming, because that's what we are we are programmed. We are programmed to, to, as you were talking about the wrestling and the fake fights. And I'm just, I've always wondered, why do we watch fake fighting? I'm, when I say fake fighting, I mean, I have cats and I have dogs and I watch my animals play with each other. And that's more like training, <laughs> right? It's more like training. It's not um, like just something that they do to, to there is a level of dominance in there because we know that the primal energy of the animal kingdom is is very strong but at the same time it's like it, it's a difference i think we really um and, and I, what i've learned from just just a few minutes i was sitting here i was like wow this is very serene this is very calm i love the theme and i love the way people are receiving the message um and i i, I try to use some of this similar type um what's the delivery um to to kind of get people thinking a little bit even when i teach the capoeira i try part of it is to when you enter the circle with a different personality because we play with personalities it's not styles i for the first thing i always explain to people is that within the first five seconds you're trying to analyze this individual you're trying to see what it is they are where they're going. I mean, it's a lot to think about in five seconds when you only have about 40 seconds in that circle. But the idea is not to just be doing your own little solo in there, again, dominating the individual. It is two people, both in a, a situation of resistance, because to be able to stand out there for 40 seconds doing this, I mean, what is the record for a 200 meter or 400 meter dash? Isn't it like 9.8 seconds or something like that? And you see those guys laid out on the floor, hamstrings pulled up and they're breathing hard. So imagine you have 40 seconds to sort this out. And in my opinion, what I teach is when you leave that circle, you should feel like you have come to some kind of understanding with that individual, not that you've dominated that individual. If that individual is not as strong as you in the game, you play a game that pulls the person up to equilibrium, not just shining in the middle, trying to be the one star. And that's, that's another issue we have that creates this oppression, which needs this resistance, is like too many people want to be stars. When you have, I, we, I mentioned this yesterday, it's like team, there's no I in team, we all know that, right? It's me, we, right? And... Um, we have a society today that is totally counter what we're doing. I enjoy some of this stuff on the internet, but it's destructive. When we're sitting there watching people's lives, hearing people, uh, oh, you posted this last week, you were on vacation hiking, you get jealous. I mean, I live all the way here in Washington, D.C. Why do I care what someone in Hawaii is doing? Right? I, I don't. And having this access to seeing all of this is destructive. I mean, and these are part of the resistance that we, this is part of the resistance we need to, to put up is like, who creates these tools for us to be like, oh, use this tool. You know, I said to someone the other day, though, I think a, most, a powerful person on this planet is a person who decides that the pound sign, as I knew it growing up, can be changed to a hashtag. Who made that decision? And why wasn't I asked if I could say yes or no to that? Who makes these decisions? Not just a scribe. Someone, somewhere makes his decisions. Anyway, let's do a little uh, 
more platform talk? <laughs> Continue. Um, I, I'm not sure how much time I have, so. Um... Okay, so. Um... Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. So there'll be a demonstration after. Encourage people um, to come and participate. So let's all take a moment to prepare to respond to the invitation to generosity as we are able. To donate online to the Simple Give system, text an amount to 202-335-1885. Go to tiny.cc slash westgives or click on give on our website at ethicalsociety.org. To donate in person today, just place cash or check in the basket at the back of the hall on your way out. And you can always send a check by mail. Thank you for your generosity. We will now receive your gifts and the gifts of music. Thank you so much to the many people who helped create this morning's time together. Senior Leader Casey Slack and staff members Indara Miles, Robin Kravitz, Tamina Beirangi, Beirangi, and Maceo Thomas, Music Coordinator Leah Morris, and our platform production team, the team, the tech team members, slide artists, Zoom chat usher, and in-person greeters whose names you'll see on the closing credits slide. At the conclusion of the platform, please join us in the social hall, either here or via Zoom. First, though, I want to mention a few things upcoming in the life of our community. The following are all virtual meetings. The Biology Reading Group meets this afternoon at 1 p.m. Tomorrow, April 10th, Global Connections meets at 7.30 p.m. And on Tuesday, April 11th, the Immigration Team meeting is at 7.30. The West Chorus rehearses in person right here from 7.30 to 9 p.m. on Wednesdays. Please feel free to join us, whatever your level of singing experience is. 
The West at Work co-working space is available in the social hall every weekday from nine to five. That's for people who are working remotely, but would like a break from looking at the same four walls at home. If you're able to take a turn volunteering as a host for this, please see Thursday's news and notes for a link to the Sign Up Genius page. That's it for my announcements today. As always, you can find information about opportunities to connect in the Sunday links or news and notes emails and on the calendar page of the West's website, ethicalsociety.org. Thank you all for being part of Platform today, whether in person via Zoom or watching later. I now invite you to join in singing our song of the month. We resist, we refuse to let hatred in. We rise up, we won't back down. We're in this till the end. We resist. We refuse to let hatred in. We rise up, we won't back down. We're in this till the end. We resist, we refuse to let hatred in. We rise up, we won't back down. We're in this till the end. Embrace your enemy, welcome the stranger, show love to your neighbor, we're in this till the end. Embrace your enemy, welcome the stranger, show love to your neighbor, we're in this till the end. We resist. few last reminders before we leave. If you're new to our community, please send an email to our membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas, and introduce yourself. For those who wish to socialize online, to reach a virtual coffee hour, point your browser to tiny.cc slash westcoffeehour. And now I invite you to join me in our closing words for the month. Let us go out the week ahead with compassion, understanding, and commitment affirming the inherent worth of black life, resisting all oppression, and transforming the world through our care. And thank you all for joining today's platform. We look forward to connecting with you again soon.